Like our bodies give us information all of the time and we don't really think about it. And so when we spend all this time thinking about our bodies as tools to be abused and the only reason that we arrest is so that we can use them again, then we would never treat another person that way. My name is Jonah. I'm a pastor, activist, community organizer, and follower of Jesus. I love the Bible, but I've been told it doesn't love me back. Enter the peacock. An ancient symbol of abundance, the peacock is more than beautiful. It serves as a guard animal around the world because it eats poisonous spiders and snakes. How does it survive? Peacocks can break down poison, get to the good stuff, and emerge fed and strengthened. Some say this is how the peacock gets its beautiful iridescent feathers. Join me and my guests as we read the Bible in the spirit of the peacock. Re-encounter nourishing scriptures that have been poisoned by hate and ignorance. Break down toxic theology and get to the good stuff. Emerge fed and strengthened with a beautiful iridescent faith. Welcome to Jonah and the Peacock, a podcast about poison, healing, and the Bible. Hey everybody, Jonah here, and uh, what you're about to hear is a conversation I had with Victoria Sun Esparza. She is uh, many things. She's a collaborator with the Liberation Project. She contributes to um, my my community's work, Zao uh, MKE Church. And uh, in terms of her own identity, you'll hear her describe herself as biracial, Chinese-American, queer, disabled, and a woman. Um, and we had a great conversation about visible and invisible identities. It actually starts with uh, her primary work, which is about design, um, visual design work. And she does something called human-centered design, which really uh, that conversation led very quickly into a conversation about authority. Because in religious spaces, there is always... Um, a big question about who has the authority to speak for God. And so her design work, which is about saying that the authority for design and the expertise is actually in the community and not in the so-called expert, um, really uh, led the way to a conversation about who has authority over believers, who has authority over spiritual seekers, and how some communities really want to claim that authority outside of the person or outside of the community, um, with where one person, usually a cishet white man um, with an able body, gets to tell everyone what is true and what is real. And so Victoria, actually speaking from her own experience um, in her lived identity, but especially in her body and in her experience of her disabilities, talked about the authority of, of her body, the authority of her intuition, and what it means to start trusting yourself. And so I'm just really excited for folks to hear this and, and to consider what it means um, to give the bodies that we were given by God the authority that I think they truly deserve. So hope you enjoy. I feel very comfortable with you and I'm like oh I'm just gonna say things that I would say to you and then be like how is literally everyone else gonna hear this 
nah, too late. Um, all right, here we go. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, today, everyone, we have Victoria's son, Esparza, pastor and designer in Dallas, Texas. Um, Victoria, can you tell us a little bit about your design work? Because I feel like it's really unusual in scope and also amazing and has hugely shaped the Liberation Project um, and is in the process of shaping Zawam Ke Church among so many other churches and faith-based organizations. Yeah. Uh, well, first, I'm very excited to be here, uh, and I'm excited to chat with you today, Jonah. Uh, so the kind of design that I do, I kind of do two kind of branches of design. So I do kind of the, the traditional design when you think of like a graphic designer or somebody who does branding. I, I do that work, and I really enjoy doing that work, kind of helping folks walk through the process of understanding their visual identity based on their values and who they are, and then kind of making that connection into what does that look like out in the world? How do we choose fonts and colors and styles that fit who you are? Um, but the other part of my design work is a lot more, I guess, meta, you could say. Um, and I use the principles of design, the same kinds of design principles that you use to make a logo or rebrand and apply them so that we think about uh, creating experiences for folks. Um, and I think that when it comes to faith-based organizations, churches, etc. cetera, uh, there are a lot of ways that we tend to make decisions without really thinking about the experience that people are having, that we just decide that there's a problem and this is how we think we should fix it. And the kind of work that I do is based on a method called human-centered design that says that through empathy, curiosity, and iteration, uh, we can kind of use our communities as the experts of the problem and then lean on them to tell us what are the next steps that we need to take what do solutions look like? And are we even understanding the problem as it appears in your life? Uh, in the hope that the church in 10 years and 50 years and 100 years uh, is something much different and more sustainable uh, and really actually like, meets specific needs as it isn't just a bunch of seminary grads sitting around in a room deciding what a bunch of people need, but it's people from communities saying, these are the problems that I have in my life and partnering alongside these, you know, experts in theology to say like, what does God have to say about these things and how do we build communities around those needs? I love that so much that, that shifting in where expertise lies. And I feel like that's actually really core to a lot of parts of my life. Um, you know, even in like as a trans person, one of the things that has shaped my experience of like healthcare systems, for instance, mm -hmm. is how willing and capable a healthcare system is to trust my expertise about my own body and put that in conversation with the expertise of doctors and nurses and practitioners um, versus coming in to someone with a white coat who says like, I will tell you exactly what this is. Yeah. And those hierarchies are so common in church and religious spaces where like pastors or theologians get this like unmitigated authority to tell us what the problems are even that right. need to be solved and then how to solve them. How does that kind of like community centered approach that, that honors the expertise of like the lived experience change the pastoring you do as well, or like the experience you have as a person of faith in addition to your design work? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I would say is, uh, the advice that I give people all of the time is your work is a lot less important than you think it is. Uh, because I think that the reason, um, our, we get like lost is because we think what we're doing is like the most crucial thing in the lives of the people that we're serving. And it's not to say that what we're doing doesn't have meaning or can't have value in a person's life, 
But I think the pandemic is a really excellent example of like, I work with families in my role as a pastor. And I'm going to be honest with you. Families could care less what we're doing at church right now. Why? Because they're trying to survive. They're trying to feed three small humans and work two full-time jobs. And there's something about when you recognize the real struggle that people are going through, when you place that at the center of your ministry, that you suddenly realize that what, how you succeed or how you fail is actually a lot less important than the daily and changing experiences that your communities have. And I think that when we kind of, it, A, gives us some more grace to be able to say like, it's okay if I fail, it's okay if I try stuff and I scrap it, it just doesn't work. But it also says like, what if I, I do a little bit less and just meet people where they are? Um, and I think that our church has kind of, uh, I think the church in general over the past, I would say 30 years, has really moved towards being really production centered. And I think they think that creates value for people. And it it sometimes, but I think that when it really comes to the real needs of people's lives, their marital struggles, raising kids, dealing with their families, their jobs, like the production value doesn't matter. And so the really, when you start focusing on communities and you start centering their voices and their lived experiences, you start to reprioritize what's important to you and how you're going to spend your money uh, and where you're going to put your energy. And sometimes that means doing less, which actually is really relieving. And it also means that like church can be a little bit more human and that's actually easier for everybody and more meaningful for everybody. What, what has your experience been like that on the other side as a member of faith communities or even beyond faith communities, like as someone who interfaces with a world that is very consumer driven and product driven that says, well, we're going to give you the best version of this product that may or may not actually um, be related to what your self-identified needs and desires um, and priorities are. Um, have you felt like there are spaces in church where you have been met as a real person with expertise about your own life? Or has that been a battle um, for you in, in trying to fight for what you need and what you want um, in order to interact with those communities well? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you that I kind of, the way my identities are uh, sit at kind of a lot of crossroads and it really hasn't been into the past couple of years that I've started to kind of really, uh, acknowledge the complexity of like the intersection of my personal identities. So, uh, to give you some context, I identify as biracial, uh, as Chinese American, uh, as queer, uh, disabled and a woman, uh, which is kind of like a wonderful melting pot of discrimination and, challenges from various aspects of my life, including the church. And one of the things that I have found uh, that really kind of is almost common through all of those identities that I occupy is that um, a lot of them are not visible when you first meet me. Uh, I know we're on a podcast, so people can't see my face, but I don't immediately look Chinese to people. I obviously look, don't, I don't look white, but I don't look Chinese. Um, I'm a woman. I think that one's probably the most obvious. Um, but my queerness, I'm married to a man and uh, I live with a chronic disability and a chronic illness. So I, I have both a physical disability and I have an illness that I, I deal with. Um, and neither of those are visible. And my physical disability only became noticeable when I had three surgeries in the past five years uh, in my late 20s on my hip. And so uh, I think one of the challenges that I I often feel, and this actually, you know, I, I was telling people, I tell people this a lot, is that like, I think part of the reason I'm in this work is because I haven't found space for myself in a lot of churches. Um, I also grew up 
in the the evangelical church, like truly immersed in conservative theology and uh, very much like bought into what I can safely say is to a very a varying degrees a cult uh, where you learn to not trust yourself and the people around you and you only follow the people who who lead you. Um, and part of the reason that I do the work that I do now is because uh, I, I think that those experiences are not given enough weight. All of the experiences I named and more are not given enough weight when it comes to thinking about how we form faith communities and the way we think about developing people spiritually, because we're often handed this like pretty straightforward manual, I think in seminary, that's not very complex or nuanced. Um, and also doesn't leave a lot of space for like the disagreement that comes when folks are sitting in the pews and they have very different needs and lived experiences. So I think that churches have a really hard time uh, holding space for all of these things, especially because as you learn, you kind of, have a bias toward dealing with one issue and then another issue. And part of what I hope to do with my work when I'm working with churches to really think about leaning on your community is saying, how do we allow our community to inform the way we think about what the problems really are? Um, and also kind of create this feedback, this, this cycle that isn't just we, we build something and it fits a need and then we move on, but that we build something that fits a need and then we check in and we say, is this still working? Great, let's keep doing it. Or we check in and say, hey, it's not working and we find ways to edit. Um, and I think that it, if I'm really honest, like I do this work because I wish that these places existed for me. I wish they existed a long time ago and I wish that they existed more readily now. Uh, and I secretly hope that one day, like I can make something that, that I feel like I belong to. Absolutely. I mean, I, I identify with that logic so much as a church planter. And I think a lot of us invested in the liberation project kind of pioneering into new ways of doing church and being faith community together have done that in some ways. Like we're trying to create space that we could be, we could, we could arrive at with our full selves. And because those spaces don't exist, we have to create them. And it's really interesting to to see all the different ways that people can do that, right? You can do that as a church planter and be like, I'm going to build a church from scratch that allows me to show up and lead or uh, participate even with the fullness of myself. Um, but even in the way that you're innovating design work or bringing your pastoral authority into existing church spaces can be about like re-envisioning space to actually include many of us, so many of us that have been... Um, excluded or pieces of us that we've had to leave behind in order to like fully participate and I feel like one of the things you're getting at is the is the assumptions made you know when you talk about what is what is visible what is assumed what is understood about your identity unless you're willing to like be very forward about it um, and so much of the authority that like that seems to drive churches is is based on like a handful of people who are allowed to make a lot of assumptions about the world and about the needs of the church. And um, I'm super curious. I mean, like, so for, for listeners, we, um, Victoria and I talk about the Enneagram sometimes. I talk about the Enneagram <laughs> too much all the time with everyone. Um, and we are both, we both identify as type eights. Um, and, and that's, you know, type eights have um, a tendency towards, analyzing power structures and I'm really curious um about your about your take of like authority in different church spaces you've been in because 
you know, talking about this kind of expertise and what we know and don't know about our bodies, our identities, ourselves, my experience of deeply conservative evangelical spaces, and I think I've had a, a healthier experience than a lot of people. Um, I still left, but, um, but I, you know, I, I was not involved in a space that I would characterize in any way as a cult, and I know many people have been. So I want to acknowledge that, that I had more freedom. But even then, I chafed against the authority that basically said, there are people who are not you, who know what's best for you, much better than you ever could. And in fact, part of the rhetoric is about um, inducing you to have a, a fundamental mistrust of your own instincts. And that just rubbed me really the wrong way um, because yeah. I was like, wow, that can, that can tip things in any direction you decide without my, you know, with my consent to like give up that authority to you, but like in this very, very power structured way. Um, and so I'd love to hear your, your experience of that, that kind of like authority um, and your experience of that within some of those other spaces that taught you not to trust yourself or that your own self-observations were like not valid. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the area that this stands out to me most, and, and I think it has different intersections with the various parts of my identity, but the thing that I have been spending a lot of time thinking about lately um, has been the narratives that I was taught about trusting myself and my body from the evangelical church. And I think that part of the reason it took me so long to be able to understand what was going on and ultimately to leave the evangelical church was because I feel like the biggest message that I received growing up, I, I grew up as like a kid, teenager, and like young adult in the evangelical church, which is a lot of years, like mostly listening to men tell you like what you should or shouldn't believe. And then having women basically like almost more aggressively in some settings, like parrot those things back to you. And uh, one of the things that I feel like that was I, truly stolen from me was my ability to trust myself and to, to see my own voice, my intuition, uh, my gut, whatever word you want to use uh, as a, a source of truth and value in my life. Um, because the language that's often used in these evangelical settings is like, I did CrossFit for a little while while I was in college and I really liked it. And if, if you're an eight out there, I'm sure you understand what I mean when like a really high intensity workout is like your best friend. <laughs> we have too much in common, Victoria. I, do, I also, yeah. I got into CrossFit. I loved it. I and loved it. In the it. end, I picked powerlifting instead because I was like, I want to do this on my own terms. Um, but <laughs> yeah, much love to the CrossFit world. But but while I was like in CrossFit, I'm going to cringe while I say this because I'm like, oh, I hate that I thought this way. Uh, I was like really new to working out. Like I had been, a, I was like a really, because like, I was like basically a professional athlete when I was growing up as like an adolescent. And, uh, where I was a figure skater and then I like stopped working out for a really, really long time and picked it back up in college. And, uh, I remember I literally, literally, this is what the mantra I used while I was doing working out is I would use, I don't even remember the reference anymore at this point. It's first Corinthians and it's, I beat my body to make it my slave so that I may, at the end of the race, I may also win the prize. And I would literally, I know <laughs> we're, you guys can't see Jonah, but they are cringing. Um, <laughs> But like that was that I believed that, like I believed I like, that yeah. my body was this like thing that I had, like the flesh was bad and I had to like break it and, and I had to like master it. And one of the things that uh, really came out of that for me 
was this inability to believe that my physical experiences that my my and like my in, in, in intuitive experiences were valid and this yeah. manifested in particularly i would say the most uh, awful way was that uh, up until probably three years ago i did not know that everyone did not live with pain every day of their life and it i'm not exaggerating and i know that sounds really ridiculous to some people but it took me a year of daily asking my partner and all of my friends are you sure that not even like a little bit, like you have a little, like near here, like your head hurts a little bit or like your back hurts a little bit or like, mm-hmm. it just like hurts a little bit to walk. And I remember after probably like the 50th time of asking my partner, he looked at me, he goes, are you really telling me that your whole life you've just thought everybody, it hurts when they take a step? And I was like, yes, that is what I'm telling you. And I think like that, when I look back on that, I'm like both angry and very sad because that was the level of mistrust that I was taught about my own body. And when I overlay that with the kind of experience that I have as a disabled person who looks, looks well, I'm using air quotes, looks well, uh, I can see why it took me so long to get to this place because the people that I trusted that said they loved me and that, that taught me what faith was taught me that my body was not, was to be lie like was a lie. Like anything yeah. my body ever told me, anything my gut ever said to me was, was evil. And it was this thing that the devil was using against me. Um, and I think that when you, when you learn, when you, that kind of mistrust that is taught to you over and over and over again, it becomes really hard to come back to yourself because no matter what you feel, no matter how bad it is, you're convinced that it's just meant to hurt you, that this is like some lie that's meant to like make you miserable. And it took me years, literally years of asking people I trusted to tell me if what I was experiencing was real before I even believed it myself. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's a, it's a very systemic, um, complex form of like lifelong gaslighting that, that, some spiritual places and communities engage in collectively to say our bodies are not to be trusted. Our instincts are not to be trusted. I mean, it, it, it makes me think of two things. One is a community member at Zhao who was describing his experience growing up in a similar context. And there was a conversation, um, you know, when he was a, a young person about uh, the idea of guarding your heart Mm. And that's a phrase that I heard a whole lot. Guard oh, your yeah. Heart, guard <laughs> your heart. You know, but it was kind of like a, a, it was given to me in the context of like, your heart is vulnerable. Don't give it away to anyone, you know, whatever. And, uh, but this person, and, and this kind of, it shows how long ago this was. It was like one of those projector screens with like wet erase markers. Oh, yeah. So, you know, this is like the 90s. Um, but they, they had their, you know, youth pastor had, like, a picture of a heart with a bunch of, like, soldiers, like, obviously guarding the heart and, you know, guns pointed out at the world. And the, the youth pastor was like, this is what you might think of when I tell you you need to guard your heart. But this is what I mean. And then switched out the slide and had all the guns pointed at the heart. Guard your heart. 
and the, the fundamental message was like, your heart is going to be the thing that le- misleads you, that harms you, that leads you astray, that yes. brings you to the devil. And, <clears throat> and that combined, and that's just like basic, you know, this was, um, this w- the, the experience was described by um, a cis white gay man who then like internalized that in his sexuality, you know, without even choosing to do so. Um, and he, he's somebody who has been really bold and came out and left at a really early age and was very like this, you know, he did find a way to trust his heart and who God made him to be. But I just, that that indoctrination so early that like what you think, what your heart for is actually evil um, is such a setup for control. And so I, I think of that, which was a message given to everyone. And then I think of a friend of mine in college um, and we were in the same kind of conservative evangelical ministry together. And this was a woman um, who, I'll call her Amy. She was like passionate and wild and um, and like very smart and very bold. And she wanted, she had like aspirations um, to like travel the world and start new, you know, they were like ministries and NGOs and whatever. It was like all shaped by evangelical world, but like she was going to make stuff happen. And I believed in her and, uh, and she started dating another person in the community. Um, I'll call him Mateo. And so Amy and Mateo are dating and like both of them are incredible human beings, mutually supportive, lovely. And one day Amy says to me, like, I'm so glad that Mateo is in my life because he can speak truth to me. And I'm like, oh yeah, totally. Like, it's so amazing to rely on a partner to like help orient you. And she was like, yeah, but I mean, you know, to help me discern lies from the devil. And I'm like, sure, yeah, you know. (laughs) We We all need, you know, that's why we're in spiritual community. And like, the more she talked, the more like clear she made her own references that the, the leaders of the, of the like women's ministry of this campus ministry mm-hmm. had like taught her in the time since I had met her that like because she was a woman based on the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. that like the devil could lie to her in a way that the devil could not lie to Mateo. And, Excellent. and so like, so she was like, oh, I'm just more susceptible to the lies of the devil. And so like, I need Mateo to like, you know, keep me grounded and speak truth to me. And I just think about how like, those are like two drops in the bucket of like mm-hmm. this system wide project of disorienting us from our bodies. I think about the way that like that intersects with my own experience of being in recovery and like mm. even secular spaces basically telling me like, you're an addict, um, you will never not be an addict, your body will always tell it like, your body will always tell you the wrong thing and you have to like disentangle that and how like there are times when like we are so vulnerable and we want an authority to tell us how to live but then like what happens when those authorities are earthly when they are fallible and ultimately at some point they become abusive yeah i i've been thinking about my my deconstruction a lot lately. And I, I'm not going to go through it on this podcast because it's kind of long, 
Uh, I think at a one point, Joan and I probably spent an hour each sharing about our, our journeys out of evangelicalism. Um, but I'll, I'll say that my deconstruction was incredibly painful and was like, uh, it was life altering for me in a way that I, I think is really hard to convey to somebody who doesn't understand. Like, I, I think even people who just like kind of dabble in church and they're like, ah, it's not for me. Uh, mine was like, it was like losing everything all at once. Like all of my friends, like my relationships, like my sense of self, like I, there was a point where I was in such an existential crisis. I remember laying on the floor in a, a cold dorm room, laying there and being like, I literally don't know what the word human means. Like, I don't know what the word, what do we mean when we say I'm alive? What is like, I, it was really rough. And one of, and I've been reflecting on those experiences a lot lately. Uh, and I would say the worst of my deconstruction was almost seven years ago to the time we're recording this podcast today. Um, and I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because uh, I don't, I would not say that I'm still in a deconstructive phase. I would say that in a large part, I have reconstructed my faith. Um, and I'm both shocked by this number of people who are still ongoingly going through deconstruction for my life, it, my previous lives in college and friends from high school. Uh, but I'm also shocked by the number of people, I, I put out a poll on my Instagram stories the other day because I've been talking about this lately. And I asked people, you know, what is it that you, you want to hear about my story? Because people had been messaging me, asking questions. And so the question that I got most commonly was, what do you believe now? Uh, which I, I like, there's one hand, I'm like, I get it. Because when I was in the midst of my deconstruction, I desperately wanted to know what everybody else believed because I felt like it would give me something to hold on to. But the part of me seven years later is like, you're asking the wrong question. Because by asking that question in and of itself, uh, you, are, you are still keeping the same framework. You're still asking somebody else to tell you what it is that they believe yeah. so that you can feel more solid. And, and part of deconstruction Part of what I have come to realize is that the process of deconstruction is not like rebuilding. It is rebuilding our faith. It's undoing and, and rebuilding things. Uh, I, I think that deconstruction most distinctly can be summarized with returning back to ourselves. Because I think that people who, who experience great loss when it comes to their faith, it's because they've chosen somebody else's words and beliefs over the very things that are already in them. It's the, the, the truths yeah. and the cores, like things that make you who you are, you have chosen over and over and over again to say, those are lies. And the deconstruction brings out and says, what if they're not lies? Like, what if this thing that I've been feeling about God is true? Then all these other things that people have been saying don't make sense. And, and I resist this like, just like telling people like, here's all the theological frameworks that I've rebuilt. Here's what I think about Jesus. Here's what I think about God. Like those things are not helpful to you. What's helpful to you is for like people to ask themselves, what is it that I, what is that I feel? What is that that I think? What is it that like my own body, my own soul speaks to me as like a source of the way that God speaks to us? Like this idea that like God can't talk to us from our own intuition is the lie. Like that is the lie. And I think that the greatest thing that I have uh, gained from a very long and painful journey is this return to myself to say like the things that I feel, experience, the gut reactions that I have that I don't understand are valid and equally as meaningful as like opening up my Bible and reading a piece of scripture that like God dwells within me in a way that I can trust what I feel and think.
such a that's such a polar opposite though of that framework that so many of us have been given um there's a lot of skepticism in that especially when you know i think that most self-reflective people um can get very easily frightened of self-deception even if it's just observing other people who feel extraordinarily confident about their interpretation of God and the Bible, <laughs> right? And we're like, mm, I see the mental gymnastics you're doing there, and I want no part in that. Um, you know, how do we contend with the fact that, like, we too are fallible authorities? How do we, like, trust our own internal authority when it comes to God moving away from this kind of, like, benevolent dictator which is both God and, you know, my, my pastor or my, my grandfather or whoever, like, taught me what I was supposed to believe. Like, how do we move from that benevolent dictator without then still falling into the trap of, like, everything is relative. I have full authority to believe whatever I want. Or is that kind of a preferable pole to begin conversation at from your perspective? So... I would, I would start first by saying, if somebody is coming out of this setting where they have been told to distrust themselves, the overcorrection is almost impossible coming out of that space because you have spent so many years, if you really believe that, if you were really one of those people like me who were told everything that you think and feel, that, that like gut reaction that's like, ooh, that doesn't sound right, what do you mean, is a lie from the devil, then like probably for at least the first I would say solid five years after you start having those realizations, you're probably fine. Like you're probably not going to yeah. reach overreach at that point. And part of the reason I say this is because, you know, I think it's ironic that we teach this, like our bodies are not important because I actually don't think that's core to the Christian story. Actually, the Christian story teaches us the opposite because yeah. why on earth would we read a book about a God who came to show up in the flesh and then talk about how that flesh God died for us. And that's how we're all saved. But God showed up as the flesh. But then we tell ourselves the flesh doesn't matter. Like the body is irrelevant. And I think that like the nature of the incarnation, it's, it's, it's crucialness to the Christian story is evidence enough that God actually does care about this, that our bodies are important, that who we are as physical beings has significant value on our spiritual lives. And for us to say that it doesn't is to fundamentally go against the actual story that the same people are believe in, are telling you is a lie. And we have to first start believing that like that incarnation is, is relevant to us. Like that it's not just something that happened then, but like God is present in our bodies now. Otherwise God would not have come as a physical body. The second thing that I would say is something that I talk a lot about in my design work, which is that. Uh, I talk a lot about bias when it comes to design because bias obviously plays a really big impact on the way we create things. It, it plays an impact on the way even like, I think a great example of this is like how AI technology is not very good at recognizing black faces, how black or how cameras are very bad with color when it comes to non-white faces because who is largely responsible for a lot of objectionless things? White people. So I think that there's obviously bias that plays into the way we make things. And one of the things I talk a lot about is how bias is something that we need to be aware of, but bias is not actually something that we can rid ourselves of. And what I mean by this is that at the end of the day, you and I and everybody else in the world have certain sets of experiences. We have certain families, we have certain socioeconomic locations. Uh, we, we have feelings and we're different people and have different personalities. And there is 
no amount of undoing that will change the fact that my first reaction to somebody yelling at me is to yell back at them. That's just the person that I am. However, when it comes to our bias, what we can do is become more aware of it. And I think part of the reason that I say we have to first lean into ourselves is because you cannot be aware of where your bias is if you don't actually ever listen to yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think the ways that we also become better at acknowledging our bias is that first we understand what like we're actually really thinking and we like lean into that voice and we say like, what are you trying to say to me? Where is this coming from? And we like learn about ourselves. But then secondly, bias can be addressed when we surround ourselves by people who have different experiences, who've also done the work to be able to say, I know what my own voice says, and here's why it doesn't make sense with your experience. And people can basically help us become more aware of the blind spots that our bias creates. And I think that in this way, they kind of actually can work together. And in a way that I think stands in great contrast with a person who says, I have all the answers, my interpretation is correct, because that person is not in community with their people who are acknowledging their bias and calling one another out on the ways that our bias is producing harm, or even our bias is presenting opportunities for things to be better and improved because of our own unique experiences. And I think that the journey has to include both, but I think it has to start with trusting ourselves because how are you going to know what you think if you've never listened to yourself talk? Well, and I, I just want to name a connection that you keep making that feels like it's not a universally intuitive connection, which is between trusting yourself and your body. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there is such a hyper spiritualization of scripture, such a hyper intellectualization in our culture that, we think of the self and the body as fundamentally different and you're talking about them as fundamentally the same. So can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, that's a really good uh, thing to point out. And also one that is like challenging for me to put into words. Um, One of the things that I would say that has been like instrumental in my growth as a kind of healing from my, my evangelical trauma Um, but also in kind of reconciling my acceptance of like living with a disability is uh, reframing the way my own relationship to my body. And for me, that looks pretty simply like no longer referring to my body as an it. Uh, And this is something that I have read a lot about and have thought a lot about. And uh, I talk to people about a lot when when I hear them talking about being in pain and struggling with the way their bodies have limitations. Because one of the reasons uh, I think it's so easy for us to abuse our bodies and to see them as like distinct from ourselves, like, you know, our, whatever other part of ourself that's not body, um, is because we see our bodies as tools and as like these things that we, we are given and they just function for us. And that's not how it works um, because our bodies have things to say. And one of the things that I have done to give my own body a voice is that I have, I've changed the pronouns for my body. And I don't refer to my body as an it anymore, but I choose to refer to my body as a she. And obviously your body can have whatever pronouns that feel best for your body. And I think our bodies, I think our bodies tell us what pronouns are right for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but referring to my body as a she has radically reshaped my relationship to her because when I think about my body as an it, then my body is like a, like an extent, like my phone, right? Like I can do whatever I want on my phone. It, yeah. it works for me, like whatever I charge it, use the next day. Like that's what it's for. But our bodies, if they are beings of some kind in our lives, we are in relationship with them and that they have information to share with us, that they 
signal to us when something doesn't feel right. They signal to us when we're uh, experiencing some kind of connection to a past pain or trauma. They signal to us when we're hungry, when we need to pee. Like our bodies give us information all of the time and we don't really think about it. And so when we spend all this time thinking about our bodies as tools to be abused and the only reason that we arrest is so that we can use them again, then we would never treat another person that way. Like I don't know anybody who would actively say, yeah, I'm nice to my partner, so they'll do something for me tomorrow. That's a horrible thing to say, but that's how we treat our bodies. And so I think that in order to, sh- to hear our bodies for what they have to say, to speak to them, to understand them, we have to reframe them as people, we're, people, beings, whatever we want to call them, that we're in relationship with. And I think this is really hard for us because I don't, I don't think Western culture really values this at all. I don't, I mean, I don't really even think medicine values this, honestly. Our medicine practice is very, Jonah, you know, I've discussed this. It's all about like, we find the problem and we fix it. Whereas oh, there's a lot more Eastern medicine that focuses on how do we make our bodies the, the best they can be tuned in to be working well. Like how do we turn systems on so that it can, our bodies can take care of themselves. And for me, that return to a relationship with my body has been incredibly healing because I recognize that on the days when I feel a lot of pain, and I'm very, I used to be very angry at my body. And I'd be like, I'm just going to push mm. through. or I'm going to take a ton of Advil and I'm just going to go do my six meetings. And then the day my body would be like, I'd be in so much pain. And I'd be like, I can't believe it's like this. I'm realizing like, or this isn't my body's fault because she can't like make my hip impingement change. Like that's an anatomy thing. She has no control over that. Maybe she's indicating to me that this is not what's best for us to like go mm-hmm. to six meetings and, and take seven Advil today. Like neither of those things are good for me in the long run. And so instead of thinking that we're against each other, maybe we're on the same team. Maybe I'm really fucking tired because I didn't sleep this week because mm-hmm. I stayed up until 2 a.m. working. Like these indications to us can actually, that, that seem like we're fighting actually are indications of like, you want what's best for us, or maybe we both want what's best for us, but we need to negotiate on what that is. And we never take the time to stop and listen and have those conversations with ourselves and reflect on, you know, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? And what do we both need right now to, to move forward and, and to feel our best? Yeah. And I think that that gets to something that you were already naming about scripture, which is that so much of our modern American Christian interpretation of scripture really tends to highlight, I'm just going to go for it and say Paul, who I think was like (laughs) deeply influenced by Greek concepts of dualism that really like to separate things. Um, As a non-binary person, I chafe at that like fundamentally. Um, But Paul really did separate the spirit and the body in the way that, in a way that like I feel it's very obvious that Jesus did not. Um, And certainly that the whole of Hebrew scriptures did not tear those things apart, um, but fundamentally found them wound up in each other. And like as in our modern American Christian readings, we tend to look even at Jesus's healings, which were of bodies, Jesus's meals, which were about feeding bodies. Um, Jesus, who was saying like, I am forgiving sin. And the consequence is that people's bodies are given comfort and compassion and Mm -hmm. presence. Um, And say, and like hyper spiritualizing that to have nothing at all to do with our bodies, obviously. Um, you know, and so when Jesus, Jesus speaks in really material, hyper-realistic terms about like, give your money away, 
like take up your mat and follow me like you know feed one another with this like (laughs) and and all of these like these commands and these teachings that like very directly engage bodies as self and bodies as spirit and we're like oh what a beautiful metaphor um so that we can just (laughs) eliminate our bodies from from the equation um I know that you referenced before a way that scripture was um I mean like you talked about your own ownership of it and your own uh, adoption of that kind of abusive mindset, but I know that was also cultivated um, by by these abusive church spaces. Um, have there have there been any ways for you to redeem scripture, or is it still still that tool for harm? I would say that I have a complicated relationship to scripture. Um, I think on the one hand, I'll I'll just be like completely frank it probably took me four, five years after my deconstruction to open my Bible and like engage with it in a way that did not feel like alarm bells and like panic going off in every aspect of my body and soul and spirit, Uh, including the time while I was in seminary, (laughs) which was challenging. Um, That sounds hard. Yeah, it was not great. It was a little bit better because you can just be like, oh, this is just homework. This is not anything spiritual. It's like reading a book. Uh, it was a little bit better then. But I think that in the past couple of years, I think um, it's shifted a little bit and I don't feel quite the animosity that I had to it before. Because for me, like uh, my deconstruction was largely built around, uh, I-, I believed the Bible had basically been written by God, like God spoke and it was in the Bible and then it was on piece of paper and then it was a blueprint for my life and every question I could ever ask was going to be answered by the bible then I got to college and I started translating greek and I was like well shit there's lots of ways to translate this and there's no possible way that that belief makes any logical sense uh and then my life fell apart uh and so particularly the bible was probably one of the first things to fall and has been one of the last things to return to my life and I would say that though I I feel that way a lot of days um there is something annoyingly uh, real about the way the Bible has this like universal living quality to it. And I don't mean the way that like, I think evangelicals kind of use that phrase as something manipulative. I mean it as this like annoyingly persistent thing that kind of lingers and, and changes and like morphs. And it's something about, it's there's something about the Bible that like years and years later, I still can recall large swaths of like scripture that I memorized as a teenager. And that is frustrating because I often just wish I could just let it go and just say like, I don't want this part of my life because it's too complicated to reconcile all the other bits that I dislike and feel frustrated by. Uh, But I find that it returns and it returns a little bit differently uh, over the years, but um, the Bible for me has this strange way of like reappearing um, as this like old friend that has grown and changed also alongside of me. Uh, And sometimes I don't want to talk to that friend. And sometimes I'm like, I still think you're problematic and I still think people use you in awful ways. Um, But there's something about you that I, I can't put my finger on that I still think is important and valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I, the Bible to me is this really interesting combination of of what is fundamentally human 
and what is fundamentally divine and yeah. and the aspects of overlap there um, because the Bible is so human in ways that are really uh, really beautiful and really dangerous and um, but there is this this kind of I mean it's another it's another relationship right it's like and, and again, I, I appreciate your characterization in the same way that you talk about bodies of having a relationship to the Bible and the Bible having a kind of uh, almost a personhood and a personality um, and an impact through relationship rather than being this, um, you know, we, we're so often taught that the Bible is this rigid, um, you know, yardstick or instruction manual. And that's just not how I experience scriptures at all. And so I'm really interested to hear about how you really, you know, obviously there were passages that you memorized and had a certain interpretation of and a certain approach to. Uh, and I imagine that even as you're re-encountering those years later and they haven't left you, that they mean something fundamentally different to you now in you know, to whatever degree they are still worth encountering. Is that right? Has it shifted? Yeah, it has. Um, one of the scriptures that was probably uh, my favorite passage growing up uh, was Romans, was the first couple of verses from Romans 5. Um, I, I grew up in a pretty toxic home and I think my family did their best as most toxic families do, but it was very unsafe a lot of the time, emotionally at least. And uh, I was like very desperate for a reality in which like magically through the power of Jesus that my family would no longer be that way and they would be healed and it would be better and it would just all be okay. And I probably like prayed for that like thousands of times. I think thousands is like well within a reasonable number. And so as a result, uh, the scripture that I, I really clung to in my hours of reading the Bible as a very strange teenager um, was this passage from Romans that says, um, and suffering produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because of the love that God has poured out into our hearts by the spirit which, which they have given us. And I really clung to this idea that like suffering produces like this hope that like it's going to be okay because I, I felt as somebody who grew up constantly suffering uh that like it was all going to be okay like I'm going to be stronger because of it and I, I still think there's some truth to that I think that people who suffer develop resilience in a way people who don't suffer I think there's like even data that shows that um but I believed it in this like like this spiritual way like more that I suffer the more hope that I have and like the, the payout's going to be bigger essentially and uh when I discovered that the bible could not be literally translated and it did not make sense for me to continue reading it straightforward I was very angry at that that text because I was like it's a lie like it's never going to get better and my family's still a disaster and it's so complicated and I'm miserable and I just felt like I had been betrayed by my best friend and strangely over the past probably um I don't say a couple of years it was really when I started my first my I've had three hip surgeries I mentioned at the beginning I had my first one about five years ago and then I had my second one in April of 2019. And then I had my third one in July of 2020. And uh, it was really around the beginning of 2019 that my doctors finally were like, you're not going to get better. Like the way my doctor put it to me was your hip just anatomically, I would rank as a C minus, which is pretty bad. And he said, we can do the surgery on you. And I think that your hip will probably be a B, B minus. 
you will never have an A hip. Forget an A plus hip. So you're going to get better to some degree, but you're also going to live with pain for the rest of your life. And you need to start accepting that. And so in 2019 was really when I was like, well, shit, like, I don't know what to do with this. And uh, that verse started coming back up. And I remember the first time it came back up, I was very angry. And I think angry because it was like, how dare you? Like, how, how dare this like thing, this th- yeah thing that betrayed me so long ago, you know, make an appearance in my life again. And I think that over the past few years, I've, I've wrestled with it. it. It's come back to me in, in various ways. And one of the things that has come out of it for me is this like reimagining of what I think of when the scripture says, like, because of the love that God has poured out into our hearts by the spirit, which we have been given. And one of the things that started emerging from me from that text was this idea that suffering produces character. Suffering makes us people who care more about other people. Character produces perseverance. Yeah. I'm resilient as hell. Like I am very resilient and, and character produces hope. And this idea that like, we have all of the things that we already need because of God pouring out love into our hearts. Who's to say that that pouring out is not my intuition, is not my relationship with my body, is not the kindness that I can show myself when I have a really terrible day, simply because I have always had those things buried within me. And when I started to read the text a little bit differently, it started to emerge as this like, what if I have always had in me, in my physical body, in my soul and spirit, everything that I've ever needed to face whatever comes because God has already given us all of those things that like by being alive, we have been given the gifts and the tools that we need to persevere. And when suffering happens to us that like God has loved us so deeply already that like our very souls know how to take care of us. And when I started rethinking the scripture that way, I was like, well, shit, maybe Maybe there's something here. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but that journey of a shift in meaning for you took how many years and experiences? Uh, Yeah. Like, like six, seven years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there is hope in that, right? Because I think that, you know, I, I totally hear you on the idea that when people reach out in their own deconstruction saying, what do you believe now? Part of the question is like, can you be the new authority who shows me the way, which is the wrong question. But I also hear in that another question, which is, can this actually be redeemed? Yeah. Right. Is there hope for me to find meaning in something that gave me so much meaning, but also gave me so much uh, you know, wounds and, and pain? can it be redeemed and is there something still there for me or has it all been a lie? And I think that whether or not folks come to the same or remotely similar reconstructions as you or anyone else, I think there is hope in hearing like, oh, this thing which was abusive is now healing. Um, you know, which is like the premise of, of these conversations, both with scripture and with Christianity that like, there is so much power in it. And I think that it's my experience of most things in life that it is that, you know, and this gets back to that kind of power analysis. It's powerful things that can be abusive powerfully and can mm-hmm. be healing powerfully. And it's, it's, it takes a, a careful hand and intention and a lot of like humility and collective learning to figure out how to make them healing rather than harmful. But it is, you know, that's a scripture that I haven't 
uh, to be fair, hasn't really been part of my um, experience of harm in the church, but it's also one that I haven't really redeemed. And it is encouraging to, to talk to you about it because I think that like my own concepts of suffering and the value um, of suffering and whether val- whether suffering has any value and what God has to say about it, those are those are still very much in flux for me. Um, but I, I do resonate with what you say and, and it gives me hope that like there is still movement there that could be healing and powerful. I, I agree. And I think that for me, the, the relationship to suffering that I was taught was like, the more you suffer, the more you're like Jesus. Um, which like, yeah. you know, I guess that's like kind of, true like I guess Jesus did suffer a lot so like maybe we can make that argument I don't think that like psychologically that's like the best kind of way to go about our life is to like produce people who are like the worse I feel the more God like I am I I think that's pretty harmful all in all um and I definitely think that like anytime suffering was mentioned in the Bible that was like immediately where my mind went was like suffering I must be more like Christ like I have a terrible life so therefore like I'm gonna be better off And I think that reframing our suffering as like this thing that in and of itself is bad, but the suffering produces outcomes that are good, I think is the distinction that is not made at all, even attempted to be made in the evangelical church, which is why it does so much harm. It's why people stay in abusive relationships. It's why people, why I was told as a teenager with a, a mother who has a very intense unmanaged personality disorder that I should just love her more. And that for years I allowed her to break boundaries and to be inappropriate and to be dangerous with me because I was loving her well, quote. Uh, and, and there's a distinction between saying suffering is bad and I do not need to welcome this in my life. But when the suffering and the pain that inevitably come with whatever lot we're given in life appears that there is a way for us to build something out of it because of what God has already given us. And I think that if had somebody taught me that when I was 16, I think I would have been a lot better off if somebody could have said, you don't need to endure suffering to be holy, but God can somehow take the horrible things in our lives and, and we can be okay on the other side. And it's part, it's part some mystical divine thing that we don't understand. It's also part like a ton of work and a lot of therapy and like don't get me wrong. God didn't just like show up and was like, Oh, you're good. Like, that's not how that works either. It requires an effort of like, I, I want to make something out of this. Um, but I think that like the way that suffering gets taught in those, those really conservative toxic spaces allows for the abuse to occur, encourages the abuse to occur. And I don't, I don't think that's what God intends for us. I don't think that makes God happy in any way, but I also think that suffering is a part of all of our lives in varying degrees. And we have to have narratives and understand like, where is God in the midst of those things? And what do we do with it? Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I resonate too. There's, I think the moment that I like full force rejected from the core of my being, the theology that God causes suffering was when someone, when I shared my own survival story of sexual assault and and I was rep- I was told by so many people um, that God had chosen to put me through that um, for my own benefit, or more often, the thing that I found really toxic and, and circular logic, like 
people told me, um, God put you through this so that you can help other people who have been through it. Yes. And I was like, what? that doesn't even hang tight with like basic, th- take, take that like one step further or one step back and it doesn't hold together. Um, but I think that those of us who do reject those theologies still have some work to do in saying, not only does God choose to work goodness through, um, through people's suffering, but that, you know, I think there's still an open question about whether and why God allows us to suffer in the first place if it wouldn't have been God's intention for us. Like, I can say with, like, absolute confidence that God did not intend or desire for me to be assaulted or traumatized in any number of the ways that I have been. And also, it's very clear that God is working through that. Um, and I think that's a tension that that's still kind of an open question in a lot of spaces and, and that that in more progressive spaces that are trying to heal, there is that first step of saying, God didn't want that to happen to you. But our, the second piece of, and also it made you who you are in some ways that are actually powerfully beautiful, you know, that we, we don't want to play into the myth of redemptive suffering, and right. yet we have kind of a shallow analysis of God's clear redemption of people's suffering. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a tension that maybe we'll have to get into on an, another another episode because I know I've kept you for a while here. Um, a question that I like to ask our guests coming on here is: Are there parts of the Bible that you feel like get too much attention, too much emphasis, that skew understandings of the Bible that you would just like to see take a back seat? Thank you for a while. Ah. Uh where to start? <laughs> uh, I think that this list is like pretty long for me because of my relation to the Bible, as we have discussed today. Um, but I think in kind of keeping with the theme of our podcast, um, I think that there's really, really harmful language around like the ways we've chosen to interpret the healing texts in the Bible about healing bodies. And I'll say that like, I am not an expert in disability theology. If you would like to go read about some wonderful disability theologians, they are all over the place. And I'm sure that we can reference them also here. Um, I will say, however, the idea that our bodies are broken and our bodies need to be fixed is very upsetting to me. In part because, um, A, I think it's where I learned that my body should be fixed. I don't think my body should be fixed. I would love to not live with pain, but like, that's not my body's fault. And that's not God's fault either. And when we kind of continue parroting these narratives about broken bodies, uh, about how our bodies need to be healed and fixed and, you know, repaired in order, because they're just, something is inherently wrong with them. Uh, when we talk about the flesh, the way we often do, like the flesh isn't sinful. Um, I think it's really damaging because I think it prevents us from being able to develop healthy relationships to our bodies, to learn, to teach even children. I think about this a lot. I work with families, like I said, And one of the things I think a lot about with our kids is like, how do I teach our kids to like learn how God feels inside of their body when there are adults in their life telling them that like, you know, your body is your sin, your flesh is bad. And like that your body is broken and not to trust your body will lie to you sometimes. Like our bodies don't lie to us. Maybe they don't understand, but also we don't understand. And I think that when we lean into these narratives about like, that are in the Bible uh, that, that are very much about like fixing bodies or bodies are broken because of sin. 
I think we need to find better frameworks for thinking about those things. And I think that plays out in very real world ways by uh, people coming up to disabled folks in wheelchairs or using mobility aids of any kind and saying like, I'll pray for you. Can I pray for you right now? That's so offensive. Never, ever do that. And also like never say to somebody, God will heal you because maybe they don't believe that God needs to heal them. And allowing ourselves to give space for like a plurality of experiences, especially when you are an able-bodied person who does not have that kind of complex relationship to your body. Given all of that, um, is there anything redeemable in the Bible? Is there anything contained within the Bible that could get more airtime, could get more attention, that could serve, you know, as a corrective? Is there anything you'd like to see people pay more attention to? So I think with where I'm at right now with my own spirituality and, and partially like the topic of this podcast is I think that we don't spend enough time drawing awareness to the, the way bodies and our, our physical presence has value when it comes to our spirituality. Uh, I think an example of this is like Thomas needing to touch Jesus' hands to believe. And we see that as like this bad thing, but like, why, why is it a bad thing that we need to like feel another person's body to like learn something like when we we talk about like eating together and we just say like they ate and they had dinner but like we don't talk about how like the body was present as a part of this like spiritual community act like the body like this act doesn't happen without the body and I think that throughout the bible all like various people all throughout the bible new testament and old testament I don't think they had this relationship to their bodies I don't think this is I think that like the reason there were so many rules about cleanliness in the old testament was actually because our bodies had a lot to do with our spirituality, that like they felt like bodies meant something to God. And I think that we tend to, when we separate these things out, uh, we tend to really trivialize the human physical experiences that we have. And we don't teach children, we don't teach adults, we don't teach teenagers that our bodies are equally as spiritual as closing our eyes and praying. And I think that we tend to see scripture as this like thing that we just think about. And I, and I wonder like, what would it look like to read the Bible as something that we, that we act, that we feel in our bodies, that if we, we took these like physical postures and behaviors, how God is not revealed in a different way to us. Um, and I just wonder, I don't know. I, I wonder how people's relationships to the Bible would be different if they felt like the, the things they do with their bodies all of the time, the regular normal things they do are somehow a part of their own spiritual journey and their, their faith. And uh, I think the Bible has evidence of that all throughout. Thank you so much for all of those insights. And I, I think it really is giving me a lot to think about. I'm, I'm like already with you on the embodiment kind of principle, but I think that like, there's still so much healing and work to be done to to shift that separation, that dualism between the body and the self, um, to find what what God really intended for us. And as we see, I believe in reflected in the vast majority of Scripture. Um, and so I I appreciate your reflections. And just in general, thank you so much for your time. I do hope to um, have you back sometime. And um, uh, again, for those who missed it, uh, Victoria is a core collaborator on the Liberation Project with me, and um, you can 
uh, hear Victoria's thoughts about all kinds of things. Often um, she serves as a, a moderator for our monthly Liberation, ta- Liberation Project roundtable discussions. Um, is there anywhere else people can check out your work and connect to um, yes. to you? So I've never done this, but you can follow me on Instagram and I post a lot about this stuff all the time. It's been increasingly. So if you want to read about like Asian American experiences, disability, deconstruction, post a lot on my personal Instagram, which is Vic Sun Esparza. Uh, and then if you want to find my work, like my business work and, and learn more about my consulting, um, you can find me at uh, inthewater.co and also on Instagram, in the water uh, with two underscores at the end. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Victoria. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Peacock. We hope you enjoyed it. This show is presented by The Liberation Project and produced by Wesley's Revival.